Welcome back to the 90th edition of Supreme Myths. It's going to be kind of an allergy-driven um, <laughs> Supreme Myths, but it's not COVID. It's just allergies. I am so excited today to talk to my friend and previous co-sponsor of a Wisconsin Constitutional Law Symposium that's going to be out shortly that we held last October. I think everybody will enjoy that uh, the articles in that symposium. Professor Bruce Ledowitz is the Adrian Van Cam Endowed Chair in Scholarly Excellence and Professor of Law at Duquesne. He's a graduate of Georgetown and Yale. He has written more essays and articles than we could possibly count and four books, including his most recent book, which I'm going to, the title of which is going to be um, interesting, I think, to people. The Universe is on Our Side, uh, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. Bruce, thanks so much for being here. Eric, thank you very much for having me. And I want to tell your listeners, it's quite an experience to, to co-host with you. <laughs> I spent almost every day for months with uh, Eric, certainly er every couple of days. And he's a joy to work with. He oh. knows everybody. Everybody loves him. It's amazing. Right, gonna, I'm going to cut you off there, Bruce, but thank so you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, okay, so. You are the first of the 90 podcast guests I have, I think, who is very optimistic about our future. Oh, not very optimistic, who's written a book trying to be optimistic about our future. So my first question is, why did you write this book, The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life? What's its thesis? And what are your solutions? Okay, well, I wrote the book um, because since the year 2000 or uh, maybe the late 90s, I began to notice a trend that other people, of course, when I say it, will will recognize, which is I would be having a talk with someone, could be a religious person, a colleague, it, would, it didn't really matter. And at a certain point, that, that that person would say, well, that's your opinion. And that and that was like the end of the conversation, because they were they were asserting that values were simply something that people chose. And that and that was all that could be said. And I know that this skepticism uh, predates the, the period where I really began to notice it, but it, it struck me that this was not possible. You couldn't have a civilization uh, on that kind of foundation or foundationlessness. So um, that's what drove me to write a lot of the things that I, that I began writing from 2000 on. Bruce, is, I mean, when, you, when people hear the word 2000, and when I hear the word 2000, what comes to my mind is Bush versus Gore. Was that a part of it at all? Or was that extraneous to this? That was essentially extraneous. I mean, that was a that was a terrible decision. And um, you you have to understand that when I say when you say that I'm optimistic, I'm optimistic in, in the sense that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Uh, I don't mean that I have some short run mm -hmm. uh, optimism. I think we probably agree about a lot of things in the short run. I have a lot more optimism than you about the long run. Yes. I think that I think that's fair. So what are some of the problems you see springing out of this notion? And I guess I should confess, um, I'm not a moral relativist. I mean, there's good and evil in this world. But I do think, you know, people know this in this podcast. No, I think that at least at the appellate level of judging, values is pretty much all we have. Erwin Chemerinsky said in 1989, that constitutional law uh, is nothing but the but the balancing of values. There is nothing else. He wrote that in 1989 in the Harvard Law Review. Right. In the forward. Um, so, well, but yeah, but that's right. that's not a problem unless you think that values are entirely subjective or whim-like. If you think that values are connected to something, connected to human nature, connected to evolution, connected to the universe, the nature of the universe, if you think values are connected to anything. Then you're with Dr. King. And then, you know, at that point, you're saying, well, we're, we're balancing values and we're going to make mistakes, but we're going to, over time, inch toward a, a legitimate and proper evaluation of things. Doesn't that assume that people are, if you're saying, if, if, if you're saying it's, it, if you're balancing values, but eventually Dr. King was right, eventually the universe will become more just over time, long periods of time. Um, but doesn't that assume that people are basically good? It uh, it assumes that um, that people are basically good. It does. It, it assumes that 
the um, the the basis of human nature, and uh, this is this is interesting because I'm having um, tomorrow my podcast, Ben Sword Justice. I'm having Christakis, Chris Christakis from Yale, who wrote uh, Blueprint: uh, uh, The Evolutionary Foundations of a Good Society. Um, that um, evolution over time has tended to make us uh, better, or you know, more like good creatures than um, men, many other animals in the animal kingdom. Um, and I think that that's the case. And we shouldn't you know, mistake the occasional for the common. Or as, as he puts it, cultures are very different, except in the ways that they're absolutely the same. <laughs> so that's interesting stuff. And, and I want to add a caveat here. I mean, this podcast traditionally is about constitutional law. But we're talking much more than constitutional law right now, and I want to make that clear. And that's a, and that's a good thing, I think. Bruce, I, although although notice that originalism mm-hmm. was founded on this horrible skepticism, and that's why Professor Jaffa, you know, back in the nineteen eighties, criticized the Attorney General Reagan's Attorney General for being a skeptic. He criticized Rehnquist for being a skeptic, you know, even though he was a conservative. He said, "You people don't understand anything about the framers." So, wait, 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 Bruce, let me stop you, because because I don't, the, the, the law professor, we have, you know, law professors, lawyers, and intelligent lay people listening to this. I think when you said Rehnquist was a skeptic, I think the lawyers and law professors listening go, wait, what a minute, wait, wait, what? Rehnquist was a skeptic? What do you mean by that? Oh, that's interesting that people would say that. Back in 1987, I wrote an op-ed for the um, Wall Street Journal when he was being when Rehnquist was being nominated for chief justice and i said he doesn't deserve to be chief justice because he wrote back in 79 that uh, if it weren't for the first amendment americans would not have a right of free speech and other uh, instances of his legal positivism uh, Rehnquist was nothing but a legal positivist and he he believed that law was law if it was written down and that there was no such thing as uh, rights aside from what was written down I mean, he must have found the Ninth Amendment to be nonsense. Two interesting things about that. One is that the Wall Street Journal published that op-ed because they wouldn't today. Not a chance in a million years. If there was a conservative up for the chief judgeship of the United States, the Wall Street Journal would not publish an op-ed criticizing that chief justice, I don't think. It it wasn't called Don't Make Him Chief Justice. It was called The Questions Rehnquist Hasn't Had to Answer. For the record, Bruce, he was a terrible human being. In, at Stanford Law School, he marched in, in Nazi uniforms across the stage. Um, he was on the wrong side of – I know what your civil rights views are. He was the wrong side of every civil rights issue that you would think about. Um, uh, you know, what's his name? Okay, so today Alan Dershowitz is a joke. But before Alan Dershowitz yeah. was a, <laughs> yes. before he was a joke, on the day after Rehnquist died, he wrote an op-ed in the, in the Times or the Post, I forget which – where he said, my mama taught me two things, uh, tell the truth and don't speak ill of the dead. And today I have a problem because I <laughs> those, two, those two things are in conflict and I'm going to speak the truth. But I don't want to get off track. Um, define skepticism for me. Anyway, he, wasn't he right about commercial speech? He didn't think it should be protected by the First Amendment. Wouldn't we be better off if we'd gone its way on that? There were a lot of things Rehnquist wanted that I think we'd be better off, almost none of them involving civil rights. So that's a yeah, different conversation. Fair enough. But, but I do, I am curious the way you, what your definition of skeptic is, if you think Rehnquist was a skeptic. Well, I think a skeptic is a person who believes that values are just a matter of uh, subjective judgment. Or as Scalia put it terribly in his Casey dissent, values are, are things to vote on. And uh, I was thinking the Lincoln-Douglas debate, <laughs> you know, where Lincoln said Douglas's mistake was to think that Values were something you vote on. Well, um, you know, he said, you can't vote on slavery. Well, so it's interesting you mentioned Scalia's dissent in Casey because leaving aside Scalia's unconscionable hypocrisy, having struck down over 140 laws in his career in that dissent, people wrote me right out. I mean, people say that dissent and they say, it sounds like you, Siegel, a committee of nine lawyers deciding what's good for the, for the, for the country. I'm not hypocritical about it, I don't think. I think Scalia was. But my question is... Um, when it comes to constitutional law, so now we're back not to not to big bigger issues, but just constitutional law. Isn't it true that in a democracy where people reasonably disagree and the constitution doesn't resolve the issue, the answer is to vote, not having yes, judges le- tell us from up high what to do? 
Um, well, yes and no. I mean, when the Constitution doesn't tell us, takes in a lot of territory, that's all. Fair. But you're absolutely right. Um, values are things that you vote on, but that wasn't Scalia's point in, in Casey, exactly. His point in Casey was that values are not things you reason about. That's true. He did say that. You're right. Yes. And that is, um, that's what I mean by a skeptic. No, so you're saying like a natural law, professor. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, but, you know, there are lots of flavors of natural law. I think the framers were natural law people, but, um, you know, you have Lon Fuller's natural law, which is different from the classic nat natural law. He sort of says, uh, Lon, I, I, I'm more like Lon Fuller, which is, if you have to explain what you're doing, chances are you'll be closer to the good than if you don't have to explain what you're doing, that there is a connection between the good, the beautiful, and the true. So that, let's and, go back. Yeah, it's, it's all Greek. Yeah, let's it's, go back yeah, to you. It's all classically Greek. I want to go back to your book. So you said it was around 2000 when you started realizing that this whole idea of values being subjective and being unable to reason and all that stuff. But it took you, you this book is 2021. So, um, well, I kept, I kept trying to get the argument right. <laughs> what is the argument? Give me the argument in a nutshell. The argument in a nutshell is this, that um, something happened around 2015. Um, and that something was a, a loss of confidence by the West, by the allies in Asia of the West and all over the world for that matter, uh, in the basic liberal commitments, uh, free speech, free markets. I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of disagreement about yeah. capitalism, I know, but, you know, basically free markets, free speech, uh, private property, the rule of law, you know, the, the, this whole amalgam of, of, of somewhat egalitarian uh, 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 society, uh, certainly um, voting in, uh, in some sense, some democratic sense, all of those commitments, they all came into question almost overnight. And you had this, what was called later the populist reaction. You saw it in Brexit, you saw in the election of, of Donald Trump. Uh, suddenly, uh, it, it wasn't. It wasn't even being defended. It was unbelievable. What's not I being mean, defended? Hold on. What's not being defended? These these traditional liberal values were no longer even being defended in Got public. So I mean, free trade was just the best example where you had people overnight who had supported free trade and thought that you know people had a lot in common. We didn't have to hate other people. You know, suddenly they gave all that up. Um, you saw the same thing with young people beginning to turn against free speech. Um, as a as a commitment, uh, and of course the people there were people on the right who had long felt that way for that matter, um, but suddenly it was like overnight that um, the things that I grew up believing in were were suddenly not only just being thrown into question, but they weren't even being defended, and um, we lost confidence. Who's in, we in, in that in, sense? Who's we in that America? Sense? America and the West, in particular, lost confidence in the institutions that we had built. So, so Bruce, let me let me ask you. So, I think I think that descriptive account is 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 accurate. Um, can we leave aside the West for a minute and just talk about America just for a second? Okay, yes, I, I, I know I, there are connections. And the book is about, and the book is about America because yes, sure. I, you know, I, because to, I don't really know that much yes. about anybody else. To me, this is not complicated. What happened? I'm going to oversimplify a little bit. But over the last couple of weeks, actually, relevant to your book, and by the way, it's a great book. People should read the book. I'm going to say the title again. The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. Anybody who is trying to restore faith in American public life these days, I think, deserves an, an award, if not a medal. Because um, I do think it's very difficult to do that. But to me, it's not complicated. Okay. Now, um, what I realized over the last month or so I always thought Donald Trump was 80% symptom and 20% cause. Mostly a symptom, not a cause. I, I, right. I think that's wrong. I think we had a black president. I think Donald Trump understood what that, he saw what, we know for a fact that he studied um, Sean Hannity and right-wing radio for the year and a half or so before he ran for president. And he listened to all of their sound bites and he listened to all the strategy and all Sean Hannity and his ilk were doing for that you know, two, three, four year period is criticizing Obama in very quiet, racist ways. So Trump knew this and he was able to um, uh, somehow convince evangelicals to join him, which, you know, he, they did. He made some dirty promises to, down, to um, Jerry Falwell Jr. 
But my big point here is what it wasn't. It was overnight, but it was because Donald Trump destroyed our country, and and I think he's eighty percent cause, twenty percent symptom. What he yeah, was able oh, to pick on was the racist reaction to Obama. I I think that that is um, too small okay. a cause, and you're right. At this point, I do invoke the rest of the world. It wasn't just an accident that the rest of the world was experiencing very similar things at the very same time. It couldn't all have been Trump. And I want to also say we're less racist than we used to be by any measure. And yet, I mean, for example, we elected Obama. But I mean, aside from that, um, and, and, and all of these problems that I'm concerned about are worse than they were in the 1950s when we were much more racist than we are now. So, yeah, he's a very talented disruptor, no question. And he's it's a great expression, Bruce. That's a great expression. <laughs> it's a talented but, disruptor. Um, yes, he is, and that's all he is. But, um, but I don't think that what I what I say in the book, at least, is uh, a change. This fundamental requires a fundamental explanation. You have and one? the fundamental explanation that I give is that. The death of God has come home to roost. The death of God has come home to roost. Yeah. And Nietzsche said something like this would happen. It just took a very, very long time. You know, Bruce, I went to Emory undergraduate, Emory University undergraduate. And if I'm not wrong, I think it was the 1960s where God died at Emory. I think it was at Emory where that slogan began. I, I, I think that that's right. right. Oh, that's right. There was that professor there yes. who actually, that, yes, the, uh, he talked about God is dead. Yes. yes. And Time Magazine even had a, Yes. You know, a, 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 a cover. Yeah. Is God dead? Okay. You know, and then, but when Trump got elected, it had a different cover, but it was the same idea. Is truth dead? Truth is dead in America. There's no question about that. Well, it, it is. It does seem to be because we can't even agree on things like who won the last election. I mean, what could be worse than that? Well, we, well, no, I think we do agree on who won the last election. Only crazy people don't agree with that. But, 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 but on the issue of truth, let me bring it to con yeah. law for you. And your book is so interesting. We could, there's so many spinoffs we could talk about. But since you mentioned truth, I have no choice right. but to mention Justice Neil Gorsuch um, in two respects. In two respects. One is he wrote an opinion in the uh, praying coach at the 50-yard line case where he asserted facts that pictures in the dissent showed were lies. Now, where are we as a country when the majority of the opinion of the Supreme Court can say which he did, the coach prayed alone without students around him, and the dissent shows pictures of students praying around the coach. And Gorsuch doesn't even doesn't even acknowledge, I don't think, that those pictures that show what he just said is not true. That's one if question I, about Gorsuch. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Well, if I remember correctly, you know, and it, uh, this it this this problem with the record in that case, yes, is is very troubling. Yes. Uh, period. Yes. But and but at least at least when you bring up a criticism like that and Gorsuch was sensitive to that criticism, not by acknowledging the pictures, but by constant his constant refrain. I'm talking about these two instances. But that but that's just a, but, that, but that has no relevance to the issues in the case. I mean, there, but there were like 15. Instances. I mean, all he's doing is taking out facts. He's deleting facts. It's like it's like the court has deleted the establishment clause. They're just deleting facts. <laughs> Anyway, what, I, what, what, I'm not. I don't want to defend Gorsuch's opinion. I know. I'm only saying he was sensitive to this criticism, which I think is a good thing. I mean, I think it's good that he that he and the majority were were, were aware that other people were going to think they were misstating the record. Right. So, so, so I want to move to a to a, I want to go back to I mean a, a a much larger conversation involving Dr. King and your thesis, which is that in the long run may take a very long time. No one's saying it's easy and there's going to be obstacles, but the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. I think there's a more accurate description, to be honest. Um, what I see in world history is technology does help. It, it gets more food to people. I mean, it may eventually destroy the planet through climate change, but leaving aside that issue. Aside that, yeah. through, through technology, uh, less people are starving today than ever before, I think, in human history. I think less people are, leaving aside COVID, less people are sick in terms of the terrible diseases than any time in human history. So a lot of that is is fair. But what I want to say is if you look at world history, you don't get much worse than the Holocaust. And if you 
And if you look at world history, you don't get a much worse public figure anywhere, anytime in any democracy than Donald Trump. He might be the worst figure. He's worse than Roy Cohn. He's worse than Justice Taney. He's worse than all of them um, for all kinds of reasons. I think the the, the, the arc of the universe <laughs> is, let me finish. Okay. The, the arc of the universe is pain, pain, suffering, suffering, a little better, a little better, more pain, more suffering, a little better, a little better, more pain, more suffering. And I think that pain and su- I mean, the Holocaust is not that, the Holocaust is a blink of an eye ago, and it's one of the worst things that ever happened, right? I mean, what's worse than the Holocaust? One of the worst things that ever happened. Yeah. However, yeah. Um, it, it, it plays into your technology point. Okay. The reason the Holocaust is the worst thing that ever happened was because of the technological superiority of Germans over Fair. other peoples who tried to kill as many Jews as they could, for example. Right, right. Not just Jews, of course. You know, yeah. millions and millions of other people. I think four million, also, Catholic, four million Catholics, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, there, I think, the, um, the, 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 the spasm was, was no worse in intention than other spasms have been, but um, what much better in, in execution. Yeah, I, I guess I just, that. I feel, um, all right, let me, let me, let me ask a question a little bit of a different way. How much of a, so, so again, you have a view that over a long period of time, things work out, but it takes a long period of time. Right. Yeah. They work out much better. And by the way, I, I acknowledge that um, it's very possible to mistake technological improvements for bending toward justice. I think sure. that your criticism is a good one because when the people, when you know, you know the theorists who say this is the best time we ever had to, yeah. in 2019, there's a whole slew of them. And a lot of their, uh, they were pointing to a lot of technological improvements. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out, okay, we're, we're really, we're far afield from con law or law, but I just love talking about this stuff with you. I, 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 I kind of feel like there's, I, I, I can't, I can't reconcile the pain and suffering of people starving and illness and the Holocaust and, frankly, Donald Trump's very existence and a whole bunch of other things with any positive, optimistic stretch. I, I, I think I think terrible things happen and in between we get lucky and not and we have some periods of time where terrible things don't happen. I think I have the better of that argument, Bruce. Oh, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> there never there never was. Um, after several failed attempts, there never was anything like the United Nations. Never. Um, after many failed attempts, there was never anything like the uh, free trade um, uh, system after World War II. After the lesson of Versailles, there was a, a, a concerted effort not to make that mistake again. So, so there, there's, there are just a few examples. And the Holocaust will never happen again. Are you In sure? That same way. Yes, Are you I'm sure? sure. I'm, I'm absolutely positive the Holocaust will never happen again. Um, but the, you know that 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 period it was a it was a bloody century, a horribly bloody century. But it was also a century there never had been since oh the agricultural revolution. There never had been um, the improvement in poverty. But it's not just technological. You could have heard whether there were people starving in the world before the 20th century. Well, people didn't know. I mean, communications wasn't what it was, I don't think. That's that's absolutely right, but I don't think people cared. You know, I don't I don't think during the colonial period I I don't think the British cared that the Irish were starving for sure. Sure. Uh, I I think now we care. The world cares about starvation. The world cares oh. about Now about, that's a um, big poverty. that's a big statement for the following reason. Um Again, apologize to the audience who was expecting a constitutional law discussion. You're not going to get it today. Um, that's, a, that's a big, big statement because it's my belief that human beings don't change. In other words, I mean, human be- whatever the – pick a morality scale. <laughs> you know, that, that universal principles we all agree on. Don't murder in cold blood. Don't steal. Don't, don't you know, all, all, there are moral issues we still do agree about, okay? Um, to the extent there are people who don't agree with those, those that, that, that they're the same numbers they were 2,000 years ago. And I think people who are good, who do care about starvation and disease and pestilence and all that stuff, there are as many people in the year 500 
as the year 2024, because I don't think human beings internally change. Technology changes. No, I think that you're right, but human beings learn. And the reason they can learn is that values are embedded in our nature and in the universe. And let me give you an example. Please. Slavery was not a, um, an accident. Slavery was not an evil practice. Slavery, chattel slavery. Wait, wait, you said, was, wait, 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 be careful. I don't think anyone who heard that take out of context. You just said slavery was not an evil practice. You mean to the people at the time? Yes, that's right. I'm okay. sorry. It yeah. wasn't considered an evil practice. It wasn't I want to make sure people crime. understood that, Bruce. Sorry. Very good. Yeah. It wasn't a crime. Right. It was an economic system. It was the economic system. It was just the same as capitalism is today. It was that widespread a foundation of economic life. And we learned over time, human beings learned over time that it was morally wrong and it will right. never happen again. And it was very profitable for some people. It was it was eliminated because it was morally wrong. So I agree with you. I don't think human nature changes very much and it changes very slowly. But I do think we learn things and I think there is something to learn that is objective. What you, the, the, the title of the book, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. Why did you use the word public? Well, what the, what are you meaning when you say public life as opposed to the book could have been called the universe is on our side restoring faith in America right could have been it right. could have been called that but you added public life what what is that why did maybe maybe may make too much out of that but what what's going on no, there no 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 I, I i i agonized over that yeah so it, it was because i don't want to take issue with people who are in fact believers you know, I mean, in other words, I want to make sure that we understand I'm talking about public life. I'm talking about political life. I'm talking about America writ large. I'm not talking about individual faith. And and that's important because the death of God is a cultural uh, uh, event. It doesn't mean that believers don't exist, of course. It, it doesn't even mean that it doesn't even mean that people don't go to church, although fewer people go to church. Yeah. Um, what it means is the fundamental story. That, you know, it was, it was a Christian nation. It was at least a theistic nation. It was some kind of nation along that line uh, for a very, very long time from its founding. And there was a fundamental story about the meaning of human life. It had to do with God and it had to do with truth and, and justice and the ultimate um, uh, achievement of those things because God was good. Once you eliminate that fundamental story, we don't have a fundamental story now. The culture, America as a culture, doesn't have a fundamental story about the meaning of human life. And so, that is the problem. Wow. Okay. So first of all, I, and, and I will tell the audience, we've had, you and I have had some discussions about this previously in the work we've done together. I've enjoyed them all. Um, so I don't want to, you know, since we're finishing each other's sentences, but um, the last thing you just said, I mean, I, I, I don't. First of all, in America, I, God is certainly not dead at the Supreme Court of the United States because they're doing everything they can to raise God in ways that I think are very problematic constitutionally. But when you say God is dead, I don't know what you mean because, uh, first of all, to me, he was never alive or she. First of all, if there's a God, it has to be a she, right? Oh, when do men yes. reproduce or create things? I mean, okay. Um, but leaving that aside, are you a man of faith? I, I was raised in Orthodox Judaism. Yeah. And I and I, I loved it and I practiced it and eventually I lost my faith in God. Yeah. And I had to leave Judaism. So if you've lost your faith and you've told me that I, I'm confused by that. If you've lost your faith in God, if you personally lost your faith in God, why yes. do you think the death of God has had all these bad consequences? Well, it's had terrible consequences for me. In what way? So, I mean, <laughs> well, it's not getting too personal if you don't want to. In what ways, Bruce? Well, I mean, when you when you when you have God, and then you can understand the universe that way, then then you have a friend, and you you have someone to talk to, someone to pray to, someone who is in charge of the moral arc of the universe. You don't have to have any doubts about it, and and you have a story about your own life. You know, I, 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 I'm born, I live, I love, I die, and, I, and I'm with God. And even, I never believed in a simplistic heaven. No, I understand. But I thought at my death, I would be with God. But 
Not that there would be nothing. But I just that, didn't know what that meant. I, I don't. I, I guess I'm a little confused. I've always been agnostic my whole life, um, but in the last few months, I think I'm moving very close to atheist. But let's just call me agnostic. Agnostic plus right now or whatever. I, I feel like I have a sense of right and wrong. I feel like I try to live my life in a moral way. Um, my wife and I both try to give back to the community. We try to raise our children in a loving, caring way. I feel like I do a fair amount of public service. I feel like I treat, I do my best to treat people well. I fail sometimes because I'm flawed, but I, I do my best. And none of that has anything to do with faith. I mean, one more thing. I have a, I mean, none of that has to do with God. I, I have a moral code completely divorced from God. And I think it's a good moral code. And, I, and one more thing. So my oldest, my oldest, longest friend from high school is a PhD in biochemistry and, a, and, a, and an epidemiologist and a real scientist. You know, a scientist, a scientist, scientist, if you get what I mean. And he's been yeah. trying to convince me for 45 years that there was never a God and we just live and die and we go into the earth or whatever. And, you know, just all biology and nature. And, and he, he's, he's about to convince me on this. But he's also a very moral person. And leaving, oh, yeah. Aside, yeah. leaving aside Eric... This man, my friend, is 100% sure in his brain that there's no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell. You die and you, and, you know. Um, but he's a very moral person. You don't need God to be moral. No, uh, that's very obvious. I mean, I like to think that I'm a moral person too. Okay. So um, they're, 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 th these things proceed on different levels. What's, what's um, I went for me, it was a personal tragedy because I was a real believer. I mean, this was my identity. Right. So that's why it was a catastrophe for me. Sure. For society, um, you you don't need God to be moral, of course. And and many studies show, as well as observational re, uh, realities, that um, whatever right and wrong mean, uh, the non-believers are just as good as as believers. There's no question about that, and I, I don't ever argue differently at all. But over time. A society that doesn't have a story of the meaning of human life, that's a very different thing. So if I asked you, for example, why are you like that? Why is it, or rather, I should say, is it important that you live a moral life? Of course. But why? I don't mean that the, the, you know, the believer has an answer. because That's, a, that's a great question, because I, I, I'll tell you what I was about to say, <laughs> and then I caught yeah. myself, because I know when I say this, it's going to open up a lot of things that but i'll just tell you what my honest emotional response was going to be and then you can yeah my, my honest emotional response was going to be because i want to sleep at night right because you have a conscience yes yes exactly so you have a story of human nature which is that human beings are have been created by the universe as the kind of creatures that have a conscience and somehow that's consonant with something in terms of evolution in terms of the universe we are meant to be like that and so you have a story of the meaning of human life. Well, I, well, I, I have a story that most people are born. Most people have a conscience of reasonable right and wrong values, except then I think about the 70 million Americans who voted for the worst American, I think of maybe other than serial killers of all time. So I, I'm trying to get my hands around 70 million Americans making that mistake. Because listen, it's not that, forget the politics. Jeb Bush would have, would have probably appointed Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett as well. So it's not, this is not a Supreme Court issue to me. It's not even a, any kind of foreign policy. He's in bed with Putin issue. It's that I'm from New York. Donald Trump is an evil man, an evil soul. What, what, if you believe in evil in a secular way, which I do, for whatever yeah. reason, maybe he was abused by his father, his Nazi father, possibly, who knows. But whatever it is, the man is evil all the way down. There's nothing good about him. He has not one redeeming quality, and 70 million Americans voted for him twice, or whatever it is. So I, that's why I can't um, restoring faith in American public life. Not until he's gone. Yeah, right. But um, but that's a problem for you because you that interferes with your basic idea that you don't have a conscience because it's just one of those things. Your having this conscience makes you more human than they are. In that particular way. Not, I, mean, not, I, I am not going to, I don't think I am, I have more of a conscience than 70 million Americans. Like that would be really egotistical and wrong. I just don't understand how 70 million, if, 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 if the arc of the universe is bending towards justice, 70 million Americans twice, whatever the numbers were, 
voting for this yeah. evil, pernicious, terrible man who has no redeeming qualities makes me just want to t- pull my hair out. Well, you know, I, I hate to say this, but um, I have a lot of friends who voted for Donald twice. Well, I did. Um, I do, too. Um, and, and I understand. And, and, and the few that I have left, I say I've lost friends over this. But I've said to them, I don't understand. The man said, the man said, famous people get to grab, you know, get to grab women's private parts. The man looked in closets of teenage girls getting, I mean, dressing rooms of teenage girls in beauty pageants. The man literally was a racist in 1989 in the worst way after five black kids were easily yeah. cleared. And, and he kept saying, a lot worse than the sex stuff. We can go on and on. Well, I don't know if it's worse than the sex stuff. There's so much to choose from. So you tell me how you can be optimistic. I would love, I think my audience actually would love a good answer to this question. How do we remain optimistic about America when 70 million Americans voted for Donald Trump twice? Um, You have to think about the the reasons why some of those people did those things. Fair. There there are, for example, there's a large group of that. uh, There are large numbers of people in that group who voted for him, especially the first time, because they cared so deeply about unborn life. And whatever you think about that, you know, you have to take that into account. Uh, I know how strongly I feel about climate change. And if Donald Trump were nominated by the Democratic Party and said, I'm going to finally do something about the increase in the world's uh, temperature, and I believed him, I would have a hard time voting against him. Because how many people are going to die? if we don't do something about climate change. So Bruce, I, I think you just raised, boy, I love talking to you because every sentence could be spinned off into 15 interesting conversations. You just equated, I know you didn't mean to in the way I'm suggesting, but you just equated climate change and the feeling uh, uh, of, I call them anti-choice people um, uh, who want to protect what you call unborn life. Um, those aren't the same things. Those are very, no. very different things. And um, yes, I was I was pointing to um, the fact that moral people might hold a particular position so deeply that they would feel that the end justified the means. Right. And this is going to be controversial and I may get in trouble, but the vast majority of evangelicals who believe in unborn human life, as you put it, with whom without whom Donald Trump would have been slaughtered by Hillary Clinton without the evangelicals. Um, yes. You say they believe in unborn life. I say they believe in, in white male supremacy. I say they believe in women being barefoot and pregnant. I say most, they don't believe it. Bruce, here's some facts. We're the only Western country, the only dem- democratic country in the world, in the world, without a national maternity leave policy. We are, the only, we are one of the few countries in the world with no universal health care, et cetera, et cetera. We don't care about, you cannot tell me they care about life when once that fetus is actually a, what I consider to be a human life, once that occurs, they don't care at all. So I, I don't, I don't, they may have voted for Donald Trump because they care about women being barefoot and pregnant, but I don't believe they voted for Donald Trump because someone in Pittsburgh where you are believes that fetuses shouldn't be killed in California. I don't believe that. I'm sorry. I just don't. Okay. Well, we have to, we have to agree to disagree about this. Okay. And, um, and, and it is true that, that the residuum of racism has, to, has made it very difficult for us to have decent social welfare policies. Yeah. And it's a, it's a strange country in that regard. And I, I, I absolutely agree with you about this. Social security, which helps so many people of color, is untouchable because it is perceived as a white program. Right. Whereas other forms of the social welfare safety net are not conceived of as white, and therefore they are always in trouble politically. I mean, unfortunately, that is an aspect of American racism that has never gone away. I think that's really well said, Bruce. And and, and, it, and, it's, and it's for reasons like that that people should, read, among others, that people should read your book. Um, if you, if I gave you two minutes or whatever it is, take as much time as you want to to convince people like me who think America may not survive the next 50 years, leaving aside climate change, that a, a very brutal violence is coming to America because there are 400 million guns and 320 million people. And because we are divided almost a third, a third, a third, we have, we have a, th- you know, uh, okay. There are some far left nuts. There are some far right, right nuts. Um, but it feels like the far right nuts have much more power, much more money, much more influence, um, and have all the guns. 
So it's very hard for me to be optimistic about a country with 400 million guns and a country that allows its students to be slaughtered once a week. No, no. I mean, I don't, like I, I said earlier, that's a short, those are short run issues that I absolutely agree with you about. Yeah. But I have to say it, that the paroxysm of violence of the civil war, if that could lead to some good outcomes, even if it took a hundred years, it did. And I think the same thing is true of what we're going through now, that w that we will learn from all these terrible things that are happening right now, and we will come out of this again. Unfortunately, probably what will what will happen is we will find a new common enemy, and uh, that will help you know unite us uh, as it has in the past. That would be unfortunate, but you know that's one way that can happen. So I said to my uh, atheist friend, <laughs> I said to my atheist friend uh, at some point. Um, who was complaining about the world in general, um, that, you know, we could fix everything. Uh, not everything. But we would certainly fix what, we, what most of us perceive as our big problems today, leaving aside climate change. If aliens came, if dangerous aliens came, the world would unite and we would find that we, have, we are friends with Russia, friends with China, et cetera, et cetera. You smile, people, if, but, 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 but. It's his, absolutely true. <laughs> see, he said it's absolutely false. And the reason he said that's absolutely false, I have a hard time. I thought I was right when I said it. He convinced me I was wrong because we just went through it, Bruce. That's what COVID was. And the world did not unite in any way, shape or form. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because there was a moment, and I talk about this in the book, there was a moment in April of 2020 when America did unite. Um, if you think back. It really did unite. Um, and um, for that one moment, um, there was a, a, a great deal of unanimity of opinion. And here I will I will um, endorse your your thesis about Donald Trump, this weird, terrible man. If Donald had run on his success in developing vaccines, he would have won. And that would have helped unite the country. I don't, I don't remember that time period. I remember Donald Trump lying about COVID, saying stupid things, calling it to China, calling it the China flu or whatever he called it. I don't remember that moment, Bruce. I'm sorry. That, mo that okay, moment well, you're remembering of unification, I don't remember. Well, you can look it up in the book. I talk about it. So, I, <laughs> you know, there's some evidence of it. Yeah, no, um, I, I know. I've, I've read, I, I mean, I, I know what you say about it. I just don't remember it that way. I remember... I remember conservatives being anti-mask. I remember fighting about this and fighting about that. That was that was a little that was a little later. There was a, there were just a few weeks when. And by the way, another thing that happened, and and this is really uh, terrible, and people on the left don't want to remember it. There were voices on the left as early as late spring in 2020 that said the virus has proved to be less virulent than we expected. That's exactly what happened. The um, New York City was hit uh, by the early version of the virus or the early uh, context of the virus. There right. wasn't really a different version. And, and, there were, and the death rate was very high. That almost overnight changed. And there was a, a, an immunologist here at, at Pitt who said that in, the, in, in uh, spring of 2020, the virus has changed and we, we, we should change our public policies. And... Democrats, liberals, the press, the mainstream press, they absolutely hounded the man uh, for saying that uh, okay. because that was the kind of thing that conservatives said. Fair enough. And, um, but that happened. Okay. You know, and today, it's, and it's amazing today because the virus today is, uh, you know, if, if people are vaccinated and all the rest of it, we're still um, quarantining people for, for something that is actually not that great a health threat to most people. Um, I want to repeat the name of the book. The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. It is a wonderful book, even if you disagree with it, which I disagree with a lot of it, but I, but I think it's an inspiring book, and I think people should read it. We only have a few minutes left. I want to get your opinion on something else, if that's okay. Uh, yes, so, absolutely. So, so now we'll change to, to, to my expertise, which is not the moral locker of the universe. That's your expertise. Um, mine is this. Um, we are taping this on Monday, April 10th. Uh, it's been a hell of a last five days. Uh, involving Clarence Thomas. So I want your, I would like to get, because I really respect, as much as we debate things happily, I, I respect your views quite a bit. Um, I have been writing for 30 years that the man has a dark heart, is corrupt, 
is a liar and a criminal. Um, I said that 30 years ago because he said he right. uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. Now, it turns out I want to run through these things. It turns out that uh, he lied about never discussing Roe versus Wade at his confirmation hearing. He said, I've never discussed Roe versus Wade. I never debated Roe versus Wade publicly. It turned out he did discuss Roe versus Wade with various Republican officials. He lied about that. I don't know if Anita Hill was telling the truth. No one knows, but he is an accused sexual harasser. I, I tend to think he probably was a sexual harasser, but we don't know that. That's, that's, we, don't, we don't know, to be fair. He did report Ginny Thomas's income for years, then she, and then he didn't for years. Um, and there was something nefarious about that because I, I, she was working for Heritage, getting jobs for people in the upcoming Bush administration, speaking of 2000, um, while he was deciding Bush versus Gore. He had no business deciding Bush versus Gore while his wife was finding jobs for people at to go into the Bush administration. A clear conflict of interest, clear cause for recusal there. And I could go on and on and on. And now we learn, of course, that he takes, you know, $500,000 worth private vacations and so on and so forth. Um, so I have two questions about Justice Thomas for you. Um, one is, feel free to argue with me, but I think he's a terrible dark soul who has a wonderful laugh and a big smile and a nice hug and he treats the staff well and I give him points for that. But, but beyond all that is a dark, deeply disturbed human being. That's one. Two. Do you think this stuff about taking private trips for this amount of money that was not reported um, is a serious enough issue to be concerned about, or do you think it's a bunch of fluff? Oh, uh, well, no, no, wait. I uh, about his uh, about his personal character. Yes, I don't. I don't wish to give an opinion. Okay, fair. Um, he's always struck me as a very strange person. Okay, and I've seen him close up a few times, and and he does. He strikes me as as having been wounded. Yes, in his own personal life by affirmative action, and um, and it, it, it left a scar that somehow never never healed, and I I I I I think that he's 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 uh, genuinely sincere when he says that affirmative action is bad for people because I think he feels it was bad for him, but something he wouldn't, was bad. He wouldn't have a platform to say that if it wasn't for affirmative action. No, right. I, I, that is the irony of it. Right. Yes. He wouldn't be on the Supreme Court. He wouldn't have been I mean, head of the EOC. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Um, now about the the the, the more recent yeah. things, I think they they show that we need an absolute ban on gifts to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, yeah. and we need it not to be enforced by the judiciary, but to be enforced by outside uh, agents yeah. um, because of the appearance of impropriety. But ironically, other things on the list you just mentioned concern me far more than than the fact that he w was buddy buddy with. Um, uh, rich white wing people, because I don't I don't think they had any personal. In, I don't think this was technically a conflict of interest. All, some of those other things you mentioned were right, but I don't think this one is right because um, this person had no interest in any case. There's no evidence that they ever talked oh, no, about hold any, on. any specific case. He had an ideology right. he was very interested in. Well, yes, but I mean, we've never considered ideological conversations to be a conflict of interest. It is on a yacht. <laughs> well, here's the thing: you have to you have to answer this question. Do do do, do right wing people give Thomas money because of what he writes, or does he write what he writes because they give him money? I think it's the former. That's, that's, I mean, that's fair. That's 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 a thoughtful, interesting question. Um, I guess my view is a person with any character would realize that, you know, it's one thing to be to, to fly to Yale Law School and give a speech, or, or it's one thing, it's even one thing to go to a Koch brothers retreat and get a couple nights of free accommodations, which he and Scalia did in the 2000s. They weren't giving talks, they weren't giving speeches, they were just there to observe the politics of it. I think we both agree that's terrible. Um, terrible. Terrible. Um, it's quite another thing, I think, to accept this kind of largesse every year for 20, 25 years. I yes, I, it is. I mean, gifts are bad. Okay. Gifts are bad. Okay. If you can't live on the salary that you earn as a Supreme Court justice, then you should not be on the court. And you wouldn't consider expenses paid to come to Duquesne to give a talk as, as, as a gift. I, assume. I wouldn't consider that to be a gift. That's, that's I, a, I wouldn't consider that as a gift, although I don't like it. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't like stuff like that. I don't, I, I don't like Supreme Court justices giving speeches. I don't understand why they give speeches. I worked for a judge, Robert Taylor, Knoxville, Tennessee. As soon as he became, he was very active in politics in, in Tennessee. As soon as he became a district judge, he never spoke a word again outside a courtroom. I think a lot of lower court judges um, in the pre-Trump era and now in the post-Trump era have a very different moral code than most of the Supreme Court justices because there is a difference between having a job for life with some power and having a job for life with basically unreviewable power. Those are two different things. Um, but every time they give a speech, they get in trouble. I mean, it's it, except if it's pablum. But you, you remember why why um, Scalia had to recuse himself in the uh, yeah. Pledge of Allegiance case? Yeah, you know, and, he was and, giving and, a talk, and, and this and is somebody not a, asked I, a question. So, for those listening, Scalia made some offhand reference once to a stupid case involving the Pledge of Allegiance, which ended up going to the Supreme Court. So he he recused himself. Um, and, and, and just, I want to be clear about this. This is not just a right-wing problem. Justice Ginsburg did some very, very shaky things in her last few years, including talking about the national election with Trump. And more importantly, I think we've come to learn, I want more facts on this, but I'm, I'm getting uncomfortable with her relationship with Nina Totenberg. And I, I love Nina Totenberg. Her sister actually is a friend of mine. She's a judge in Atlanta. She's a wonderful person. So I don't want to, but I think I think the sharing between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Nina Totenberg wasn't all that wonderful thing. I, I think. Right. No. I uh, yes, that's right. And I, I have down on my on my list of things to mention uh, Justice Ginsburg's comments about Trump. Yes. I, I, that's the kind of thing that justices have no business doing, and it's gotten worse in recent years. Uh, really, they used to be much more invisible than they are now, and they should be invisible. You know, when Warren was putting together the, the unanimous court for Brown, he didn't say anything about right. it. Right, right. On the other, on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, if, we're, if we're in an originalism world, John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson certainly had public, public <laughs> fights when, when John Marshall was chief justice and Jefferson was president. I want to remind listeners of this, um, leading to when Jefferson became president in 1801, the, the president and the Congress telling the Supreme Court to go home for a year. We're not, yeah. we're, closing, we're closing you down. And they did. Something that probably couldn't happen today, but you know my feelings about that. I wish they could. Um, but but I, they, don't see, I mean, I always tell my students when we get to that, um, why, why couldn't the Democratic majority have done the same thing to keep them from overturning Roe versus Wade? To send, to send the court home for a year. Yeah. Because the Senate wouldn't have agreed because of the filibuster. That's the reason. Yes, we have to get rid of the filibuster. We yeah. we cannot be at, we could we didn't get time to talk about all those other things yes. that you send me a list of. Yes. But one thing I want to say is if we're if we're going to have a, a major questions doctrine in administrative law, if we're going to have this much division, we have to get rid of the filibuster. We have to let democracy work at some point. I can think of no better way to end this than that sentence. Bruce, thank you so much for being here. I always enjoy talking to you. I'm going to say it one more time. The book is The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. Even if someone's like me and doesn't have much faith in American public life, this book is worth reading and will make you think, and that's really the most important thing we can do. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Eric. Really great.